Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, July 18th, 2022, the 544th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Happy Monday and a warm welcome to all of you listening to the podcast episode today, the day of its release. To do that, you have to be a paid subscriber on Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com which you can do for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. It comes out to under a quarter per episode, and it is the best way to support this show and the work that I do. If you're listening on another platform and you're a couple days behind, the way to catch back up is by signing up on the Substack. If you're having trouble financially, totally understand. Many of us are through the last two years. There are a couple of subscriptions that I am happy to send you a year long subscription that some of the people in the telegram chat have sponsored. So if you get in touch with me directly and you tell me you're having a hard time, but you really want to be up to date with the show, I will help you out. So beyond that, I hope you all had a good weekend and let's get into it. And I'm going to start in an 
unusual place today. I don't spend a lot of time talking about the British royals, mostly because I think royalty is very stupid. And I'm not remotely interested in their family drama or the reality show that gets produced anytime one of them makes news. I don't really care who they marry or who interviews them or whether or not they decide to not be royal anymore. And I certainly don't care about the causes they pretend to champion. But I'm going to make an exception today because this caught my eye and I think it is kind of a perfect example of what's happening in the world, the separation between the elites and the people of the world. This is from the Daily Mail this morning. Prince Harry wades into U.S. politics again as he slams the rolling back of constitutional rights and the few weaponizing lies and disinformation at the expense of the many during Nelson Mandela Day speech at empty U.N. Prince Harry has again waded into U.S. politics as he blasted the rolling back of constitutional rights during his keynote speech at the U.N. General Assembly in New York. The Duke of Sussex and his wife, Meghan Markle, arrived hand in hand ahead of his speech to delegates on climate change and poverty during the two hour meeting. You got that? The royals are going to fix the weather and eliminate poverty. They're going to save the earth from the sun and make sure that no one is ever poor again. The 37-year-old attacked American politics during his keynote speech at the United Nations during an informal event to mark Nelson Mandela Day in New York City. And they have a few of his quotes in here, but I'm going to skip around and just give kind of the, the context, and then we can actually listen to the video. So you can simply hear what he said for yourself. And we'll get to that in just a second. His wife, Megan, told Vogue that her feminist husband had a guttural reaction to the overturning of abortion laws last month. Oh, he's a feminist and the decision hurt his feelings. So that's why he's traveling to a globalist institution and opining about the problems with America's constitutional order and the results and implications of having a constitution. So we have a member of a foreign royal family. The royal family of the country from whom America secured its own independence. And he's speaking to the General Assembly of, I guess, the premier international body that exerts force over the countries and the governments and the people of the entire world, the UN. He's expressing that the British royal family does not approve of America's position on abortion. Why is he telling the U.N. this? What are they going to do? Are they going to send in the blue helmets? You know, a U.N. peacekeeping mission. The U.N. has peacekeeping missions. And the peacekeepers that go on those missions are essentially just military. So what it really is, is the U.N. has a military and they carry out operations around the world and they call it peacekeeping. From the UN's own site, the budget for the fiscal year that just ended on June 30th, 2022, 
$6.38 billion. That's a lot of peace they must be keeping. They note just a couple paragraphs down that by way of comparison, this is less than half of 1% of the world military expenditures. And since they describe it in comparison to military expenditures, I don't think that I'm setting myself up to be called a conspiracy theorist by asserting that the term peacekeeping is kind of a euphemism. This is just the UN's military. So let's see what the conditions for deployment are. And again, this is from peacekeeping.un.org. The Security Council determines the deployment of a new UN peacekeeping operation. A number of steps have to happen before that decision is reached. Initial consultation. As a conflict develops, worsens, or approaches resolution, the UN is frequently involved in a number of consultations to determine the best response by the international community. These consultations would likely involve all relevant United Nations actors, the potential host government and the parties on the ground, member states, including states that might contribute troops and police to a peacekeeping operation, regional and other intergovernmental organizations, other relevant key external partners. During this initial phase, the UN Secretary General may request a strategic assessment to identify all possible options for UN engagement. So they talk to the members of the UN who are directly involved in the situation. They talk to the potential host government. If the UN were to run a peacekeeping mission in America, for instance, they would have to talk to the American government, which is currently at least ostensibly under the control of the evil twin faction, the global communist faction in the United States with Joe Biden currently serving as fake president. They talk to the members of the Security Council. They talk to regional and other intergovernmental organizations that could basically be anybody and other relevant key external partners, which sounds kind of a lot like stakeholders. And when they refer to stakeholders, they're usually talking about corporations, NGOs, everything run by the World Economic Forum. They do a technical field assessment. As soon as security conditions permit, the secretariat usually deploys a technical assessment mission to the country or territory where the deployment of a UN peacekeeping operation is envisaged. The assessment mission analyzes and assesses the overall security political, military, humanitarian, and human rights situation on the ground and its implications for a possible operation. And it should be noted how often they consider abortion to be a human rights issue. It's also worth noticing that Prince Harry is not complaining about all the other countries in the world who have stricter abortion policies than the United States does. Based on the findings and recommendations of the assessment mission, the UN Secretary General will issue a report to the Security Council. This report will present options for the establishment of a peacekeeping operation as appropriate, including its size and resources. The report will also include financial implications and statement of preliminary estimated costs. If the Security Council determines that deploying a UN peacekeeping operation is the most appropriate step to take, it will formally authorize this by adopting a resolution. 
The resolution sets out the operation's mandate and size and details the tasks it will be responsible for performing. The budget and resources are then subject to general assembly approval. And if it's starting to sound like the UN can send its military wherever it wants for any reason, so long as they can find some sort of alignment and agreement with other nations, other institutions, and other members of the Security Council, I think you're probably on the right track. Do they take a vote of the people of these nations? Of course not. But we are supposed to believe that the government of these nations is always representing the best interest of the people of these nations, despite the fact that everything in reality proves to us that's not true. The illegitimate regime pretending to run the United States right now certainly does not have the best interest of the citizens of the United States at heart when they are making decisions. They are executing a global agenda, and they have admitted that. Joe Biden's own economic advisor, Brian Deese, said last week or maybe the week before that Americans will continue to have to just deal with high gas prices for as long as it takes to preserve the liberal world order. And once again, the problem with that is not the word liberal, although that is a problem. The problem is that it's a world order. These global governing bodies have taken the power and the responsibility to decide what is best for sovereign nations, including when they're allowed to put military aligned with their agenda into these nations. The secretary general normally appoints a head of mission, who is usually also his special representative, to direct the peacekeeping operation. The head of mission reports to the undersecretary general for peacekeeping operations at the U.N. headquarters. The secretary general also appoints a peacekeeping operations force commander and police commissioner and senior civilian staff. The Department of Peacekeeping Operations and the Department of Field Support are then responsible for staffing the civilian components of a peacekeeping operation. In the meantime, the head of mission and the Department of Peacekeeping Operations and the Department of Field Support lead the planning for the political, military, operational, and support logistics administration aspects of the peacekeeping operation. The planning phase usually involves the establishment of a headquarters-based joint working group or integrated mission task force with participation of all relevant UN departments, funds, and programs. Deployment of an operation proceeds then as quickly as possible, taking into account the security and political conditions on the ground. It often starts with an advanced team to establish mission headquarters and leads to a gradual buildup to encompass all components and regions as required by the mandate. The UN has no standing army or police force of its own, and member states are asked to contribute military and police personnel required for each operation. Peacekeepers wear their country's uniform and are identified as UN peacekeepers only by a UN blue helmet or beret and a badge. Civilian staff of peacekeeping operations are international civil servants recruited and deployed by the UN Secretariat. The Secretary General may be required to provide regular reports to the Security Council on the implementation of the mission mandate as mandated. 
The Security Council reviews these reports and briefings and renews and adjusts the mission mandate as required until the mission is completed or closed. So they don't have a standing army. They gather troops from different countries around the world, all of whom are obviously aligned with the mission. But let's go a little deeper into the history of UN peacekeeping missions. This is from Wikipedia's entry on the history of United Nations peacekeeping. This is the assessment section. A 2005 Rand Corporation study found the UN to be successful in two out of three peacekeeping efforts. Not a very good record. <laughs> two out of three. And I suppose the definition of successful is a little hazy here as well. It compared U.N. nation building efforts to those of the United States and found that seven out of eight U.N. cases are at peace as opposed to four out of eight U.S. cases at peace. So they're better. Also in 2005, the Human Security Report documented a decline in the number of wars, genocides and human rights abuses since the end of the Cold War and presented evidence albeit circumstantial, that international activism, mostly spearheaded by the UN, has been the main cause of the decline in armed conflict since the end of the Cold War. So naturally, the UN imagines itself as the permanent solution to international conflict of any kind. As long as we get the international community together and enforce the will of the international community, as opposed to any sovereign nation who we could label as the enemy, all good. World peace just around the corner. The UN has also drawn criticism for perceived failures. In some cases, the Security Council has failed to pass resolutions or the member states have been reluctant to fully enforce them in the face of deteriorating conditions. Disagreements in the Security Council are seen as having failed to prevent the 1994 Rwandan genocide. If only we had given them more power. UN and international inaction has also been cited for failing to intervene and provide sufficient humanitarian aid during the Second Congo War. The failure of UN peacekeepers to prevent the 1995 Srebrenica massacre. Failure to provide effective humanitarian aid in Somalia. Failing to implement provisions of Security Council resolutions related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Kashmir dispute, and continuing failure to prevent genocide or provide assistance in Darfur. One suggestion to address the problem of delays, such as the one in Rwanda, is a rapid reaction force, a standing group administered by the UN and deployed by the Security Council that receives its troops and support from current Security Council members and is ready for quick deployment in the event of future genocides. So they didn't have enough power. They weren't able to react in time. And because the UN was not able to do what it absolutely must do to save the world, all of these atrocities happened. So the solution is to give them a standing army. So that the international governing body above all sovereign nations can implement military solutions much faster. UN peacekeepers have also been accused of sexual abuse, including child rape, gang rape and soliciting prostitutes during peacekeeping missions in the Congo, Haiti, Liberia, Sudan, Burundi and the Ivory Coast. In response to criticism, 
including reports of sexual abuse by peacekeepers, the UN has taken steps toward reforming its operations. The Brahimi report was the first of many steps to recap former peacekeeping missions, isolate flaws, and take steps to patch these mistakes to ensure the efficiency of future peacekeeping missions. The UN has vowed to continue to put these practices into effect when performing peacekeeping operations in the future. The technocratic aspects of the reform process have been continued and revitalized by the Department for Peacekeeping Operations in its Peace Operations 2010 Reform Agenda. The 2008 capstone doctrine entitled United Nations Peacekeeping Operations, Principles and Guidelines incorporates and builds on the Brahimi analysis. In 2013, the NGO Transparency International released a report critical of UN peacekeeping, anti-corruption guidance and oversight. And let's just look at one example. This is from AFP, the French news outlet. This is from 2016 UN report. Peacekeepers from 21 nations accused of sexual abuse. And this is a United Nations report. This is them reporting on themselves. The United Nations is reporting a deeply concerning increase in allegations of sex abuse by its peacekeepers, with 69 claims last year against troops from 21 countries. 69 claims. That's a new one every five days. A much-awaited report by UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, obtained by AFP on Thursday, provides for the first time the nationalities of the troops facing the allegations. Hey, that's not the most important part. First on the name and shame list was the Democratic Republic of Congo, whose troops faced seven allegations, followed by Morocco and South Africa, each hit with four accusations. Most of the allegations involved troops from African countries, Cameroon, Congo, Tanzania, Benin, Burkina Faso, Burundi, Gabon, Niger, Nigeria, and Togo. Police from Rwanda, Ghana, Madagascar, and Senegal also faced claims. Peacekeeping police from Canada and Germany, as well as soldiers from Moldova and Slovakia, were also accused of sexual abuse or exploitation while serving as UN peacekeepers. Two UN missions accounted for the majority of claims. The MINUSCA force in the Central African Republic and MINUSCO in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but there were also cases in Ivory Coast and Mali. This increase in the number of allegations is deeply concerning, said the report to be formally released on Friday. The 69 allegations represented a marked increase from 52 in 2014 and 66 the previous year. At least 22 children were sexually abused by peacekeepers, according to the report. But that figure may be higher as the age of the victims was not always determined. None of last year's cases have resulted in criminal prosecution, though a Canadian police officer who served in Haiti was given a nine-day suspension. Under UN rules, it is up to the country that contributed the relevant troops to investigate and prosecute those accused of misconduct while serving under the UN flag. Human rights groups have complained about the lack of accountability for peacekeepers serving in U.N. missions. Many have avoided investigation altogether or received light punishment. Last year, the United Nations was informed that 10 soldiers and three police would be repatriated and barred from taking part in any future missions. The report said, oh, they must be devastated. They got sent back to their countries and they're not allowed to go on a peacekeeping mission and sexually abuse any other women or children. For allegations dating back to 2014, one soldier was sentenced to six months in prison for sexually abusing a minor in exchange for money. 
while another was punished with a 60-day jail sentence. Another soldier was forced into retirement for child rape while a military observer received a warning for engaging in prostitution. The United Nations has been badly shaken by the wave of allegations of sex abuse by the troops it deploys in missions with a clear mandate to protect civilians. An independent panel concluded in December that the United Nations had grossly mishandled serious cases of child rape in the Central African Republic, despite the official zero tolerance policy on sexual violence. Of the 69 allegations, 22 involved peacekeepers in the Central African Republic, while 16 were from the Democratic Republic of Congo. The high number of cases from the Central African Republic stems from the violent conflict that has pushed women and girls into prostitution and increased their vulnerability to abuse, said the report. It is deplorable that United Nations personnel would take advantage of this situation, it added. And that's crazy. I mean, they went in to fix everything and instead they just participated in the problem. How odd for an international organization to do something other than what they said they were going to do. Two victims who became pregnant succeeded in establishing the peacekeepers as the fathers, but some 25 other paternity claims dating back to 2010 have yet to be settled, said the report. Bond reported that Payments to 12 peacekeepers, three police and one government provided worker were suspended last year after credible allegations of sexual abuse surfaced against them. Oh, good. They stopped paying them to sexually abuse people. That's that's productive. The U.N. chief is also recommending a six month limit for investigations, establishing on site courts martial for soldiers and requiring peacekeeping countries to provide DNA samples of their soldiers on missions. And that all makes it sound like they expect this stuff to keep happening. The United States is preparing a draft U.N. resolution that would endorse his proposals, and the report is expected to be discussed at a Security Council meeting on March 11th, diplomats said. And of course, this was 2016. Now, a couple of months ago, I put out a video making fun of U2 and Jill Biden and some other morons heading to Ukraine, the very dangerous war zone, so that they could do PR for their cause. And in the course of that, Jill Biden met with the comedic actor's wife and they visited with a U.N. partner, the International Organization for Migration. And on the International Organization for Migration's website, specifically the page devoted to the IOM's mission in Ukraine, there is a segment at the bottom of the page that reads as follows. You can report misconduct, sexual exploitation and abuse, fraud and corruption, harassment, retaliation, misuse of resources or other misconduct of an IOM employee, IOM's implementing partner or staff members from a different agency. This includes anyone employed by or working with other organizations. Concerns, suspicions, and or allegations should be reported to IOM's Office of the Inspector General via the We Are All In reporting application on webpage. So they have basically a hotline so that people can report abuse by members of the International Organization for Migration, a UN partner. And I mentioned in that video that IOM has been working since 1996 to, quote unquote, safely transport refugees through Ukraine. So they've been working to transport refugees through Ukraine for 26 years. 
But Jill Biden is there now highlighting all of this to show how dangerous the refugee situation in Ukraine is, even though the U.N. and their partner organizations like the International Organization for Migration have been over there for 26 years. And thank goodness they have all that experience in transporting massive numbers of immigrants through Ukraine 25 years before Russia invaded, 26 years before Russia invaded. Was Ukraine at war that whole time? Or are the immigrants just forever fleeing gang violence and climate change like they are at our southern border? And how much abuse must be happening in your organization to have the need to set up a hotline where the first type of abuse they list on their website is sexual exploitation and abuse. Whatever your problem is, the UN and their partner organizations are almost guaranteed to make it worse. But let's return to the Duke of Sussex. How many of us feel battered, helpless, in the face of the seemingly endless stream of disasters and devastation? I understand. This has been a painful year in a painful decade. Okay, so we're supposed to understand that Prince Harry at the United Nations is not actually addressing the General Assembly, the United Nations as a body or its members. With his language, we're supposed to assume that he's talking about the people of the world. We've been battered over these last many years. It's wrought devastation, a painful year in a painful decade. Has this been a painful year for the people of the world? Certainly. Has it been a painful decade for the people of the world? I suppose you could argue that. But let's consider for a second that his words are not meant to address the people of the world. They are meant to address the members of the United Nations, the United Nations itself, and the power centers within the international community. For them, has this been a painful year, a painful decade? Do they feel battered? Are they having a really hard time? Well, it's possible they are. Things have not been going particularly well for the global communist order. A couple months ago, when the World Economic Forum was meeting in Davos, there were all sorts of articles about how globalism may be dead. The ongoing trend of sovereign leaders moving their countries further away from the global order. That's a real thing. That people like Prince Harry and the members of the United Nations and other globalist bodies are having a hard time with. This was their plan and their plan is having problems. The people of the world are discovering what their plan is and they don't want any part of it because why would they? Their plan for the people of the world is essentially permanent human slavery. It's the end of human liberty across the entire world. But I know that's too dramatic. It's a conspiracy theory, except for the fact that they are planning to employ environmental social governance scores, not only on the countries, the highest rated of which, by the way, are the ones in the most turmoil around the world because of the implementation of the ESG of the Green New Deal. That's what that is. But they want to bring that to the individual as well. In terms of social credit scores, like the Chinese Communist Party runs on its citizens, 
They'll record what websites you visit, what places you visit, the things you say, the people you message, who you hang out with, who you surround yourself with, what you buy, whether or not you're complying with what the government wants. These will all be part of your score, your social credit score, your ESG score, and your ability to choose your own future will be dependent on having an acceptable score, your ability to participate in society will depend on the government's view of how you choose to live your life. You'll be punished for doing the wrong things and you will get slightly less suffering. They will call that freedom when you comply with everything they say and you continue to do the right things. Your social credit score will be part of the same program that tracks your vaccine status and other medical status. They'll be able to make sure that you are up to date on your subscription for experimental gene therapies. And they plan to move the world to a cashless central bank digital currency that they can turn on and off anytime they want. You do the wrong things. Well, now you can't spend money. They can implement fines and just extract them from your account. And you must remember, of course, that you will own nothing and be happy. These are literally parts of the plan that they're talking about. Where in that plan do you imagine your human liberty exists? You can do whatever you want, so long as nothing you do is something they don't want you doing. But don't worry, they're big supporters of freedom of choice when it comes to aborting babies. Because, of course, they want you aborting babies and they're happy to reward you for it and also punish you if you don't support it. So it turns out that's kind of part of the same thing, isn't it? We're living through a pandemic that continues to ravage communities in every corner of the globe. Climate change wreaking havoc on our planet with the most vulnerable suffering most of all. The pandemic is still wreaking havoc, except it isn't. The governments are wreaking havoc and using the pandemic as an excuse. The pandemic isn't doing anything. There is no pandemic right now. That is for certain. If the coronavirus is still out there infecting people, it is a much weaker form. And we saw that with Omicron. Omicron began in America eight months ago, eight months ago. Everybody got mildly sick for a little while. And this new current, very scary variant is weaker than that, but it's more transmissible. It's more transmissible. Be more scared. And all of this for a virus in its original form that was no more deadly than an average flu. And of course, climate change, devastating everything, just everything everywhere. You want to know how devastating climate change is? Well, today... The UK halted all flights from its largest Royal Air Force base because they're saying the runway melted. And no, I'm not joking. This is Sky News. Let's just bring you some breaking news now. Sky News understands uh, the RAF has halted flights in and out of RAF Bryson Norton because the runway has melted in this extreme weather. Now, Bryson Norton is in Oxfordshire. It's the largest RAF base in the country. And another source has been telling Sky News this afternoon that contingency plans have been implemented to ensure that there is no impact on any military operations today. The Royal Air Force 
halted all flights out of the Royal Air Force Base, their largest one, Bryce Norton, in Oxfordshire. The weather tomorrow, it's already evening there, of course. The high temperature for tomorrow is 37 degrees Celsius. That's 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. The runway melted? Climate change must really be getting serious. And of course, Prince Harry had to mention that the vulnerable were the hardest hit. Well, the vulnerable are always the hardest hit. That's what it means to be vulnerable. Not hardest hit? British royals and members of the United Nations. And it's strange, isn't it, that the hardnesses of the hits that all the vulnerable people are taking are directly linked back to the policies being implemented by these governments around the world in coordination with all of these international bodies and supported by the British royals. Lockdowns have devastated the world in two years in a way that would far surpass anything climate change could have done in the next 200. And they chose that. Oh, but I know the science says the world is going to end in eight years if we don't implement communism right now. The sun is going to continue attacking the earth. And if no one stops it, the earth is going to end in eight years. So to prevent that, everybody needs to get on board with the agenda. And hey, if we tell you we need tracking apps and social credit scores and central digital currency, well... Are you trying to help the sun kill the earth the same way you helped QAnon kill everybody's grandmother by not wearing a mask? The few weaponizing lies and disinformation at the expense of the many. The few are weaponizing lies at the expense of the many. All right, well, let's break that down a little bit. Who are the few? If you were to group all of the people in the world together into smaller subgroups, Based on things like relative power versus relative vulnerability, who would the few be in that situation? I would suggest that the few would be people like royal families, international governing bodies, massive transnational corporations, a globally aligned media like those members of the Trusted News Initiative, the BBC being first and foremost among them. The global public health community, like the WHO. How about the World Trade Organization? How about the World Economic Forum? Those are some examples of the few. The people at the tops of all of those institutions are indeed the most powerful and wealthy people in the world. And of course, the prince of the British royal family has to be among those. But of course, he's talking about people who are promoting The opposite agenda, people who don't want to be involved in the global agenda, the global communist agenda, as outlined by the wealthy and powerful who front all of these international organizations. We are being told that those are the spreaders of misinformation, and he is describing the spreaders of misinformation as the few. Their misinformation is having a negative impact on the many. So the people of the world who are not interested in being governed by global bodies or by monarchs are being reframed as the few. It's like how CNN framed Steve Bannon in their ridiculous special last night. This one man, 
He's just promoting all these falsehoods and getting people to go along with him. They're all in some sort of hypnotic trance where they believe whatever they see on TV and everything they read in the news and everything they're told by the public health organizations and the universities. Steve Bannon goes out there with no facts whatsoever, and he says things like, trust the science, trust the experts. Who are you to think for yourself? That's what Steve Bannon does. He puts everybody under his spell. And once they're under the spell, they begin turning their friends and neighbors into the authorities for thinking and saying the wrong things or perhaps associating with the wrong people or maybe saying an idea that the Internet fact checked that bastard. Oh, those few ruining it for everyone else. Those few. How dare they? How dare they spread that misinformation and convince everybody else with facts and logic and reflection about their own position in the world. But of course, that's preposterous. It's not war room viewers who completely lack the capacity to explain any of the things they say and believe. It's the people who fall in direct alignment with people like Prince Harry, who is at a global governing body representing the viewpoint of the British monarchy. He is representing his own position as the position of the many. And we are supposed to accept that because everybody knows that the British royals are the best royals. In fact, it would be better if the world was just controlled by monarchies, kings and queens in all the countries. And then, of course, whatever territories they control. That's what we really need. Everybody knows that America would have been so much better off. If we never had a declaration of independence, if America never secured its own independence and we just stayed subservient to the British monarchy and its laws. Oh, wait, we still are kind of subservient to the British monarchy and, the, and its laws. Oh, that's uh, oh, let's not talk about that. And from the horrific war in Ukraine to the rolling back of constitutional rights here in the United States, we are witnessing a global assault on democracy and freedom. A global assault on democracy and freedom because of the horrific war in Ukraine, which the global organizations initiated and directed and are now elongating. Because it turns out that the few have a lot of priorities in Ukraine and they will keep the conflict going at the expense of the many whose tax dollars are paying for it. And that's not even to mention the fact that Ukrainian civilians, the most vulnerable in Ukraine, are being the hardest hit by Ukrainian Nazis, supported by the West. Now, we've all been led to believe that monarchies do not control the world, despite there being quite a few of them still in Europe, and that the royal families of these European countries and elsewhere are just figureheads now. They're not actually involved in the politics at all, even though Joe Biden just traveled to meet the King of Spain like two weeks ago. But if they're just figureheads, why are they making policy speeches at an international governing body? Oh, I know. They're just bringing awareness to the plights of the many caused by the few. And it's amusing sometimes while analyzing the things these people are saying to Notice that there actually is a literal truth 
to the things that are being said. That's in many ways more relevant than the thing they're actually trying to get people to understand. Taken literally, though, he's exactly right. The few are weaponizing lies at the expense of the many. Lies like two weeks to slow the spread or masks can reduce the spread of the coronavirus or vaccines are very safe and effective or 2020 saw the safest and most secure election in American history. All of those are lies coming from the few at the expense of the many, but that's certainly not what old Prince Harry was trying to indicate. So let's go a little bit deeper into the figurehead relationship, the illusion that the British monarchy don't really play a role in the government in the UK. It's actually the citizens represented in parliament and they make all the decisions. It's basically the same as the United States. We are actually seeing some of this become relevant in the last few weeks as we saw what was happening with Boris Johnson and his supposed resignation as prime minister, even though he actually only resigned from his role as leader of the conservative party there, the Tories. This is from Royal.uk, the official site for the royal family. The Queen's role in government. As head of state, the Queen has to remain strictly neutral with respect to political matters. By convention, the Queen does not vote or stand for election. However, Her Majesty does have important ceremonial and formal roles in relation to the government of the UK. The formal phrase Queen in Parliament is used to describe the British legislature, which consists of the Sovereign, the House of Lords, and the House of Commons. The Queen's duties include opening each new session of Parliament, granting royal assent to legislation, and approving orders and proclamations through the Privy Council. The Queen also has a special relationship with the Prime Minister, retaining the right to appoint and also meeting with him or her on a regular basis. In addition to playing a specific role in the UK Parliament based in London, the Queen has formal roles with relation to the devolved assemblies of Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. So what is the Queen's role with Parliament? The Queen has an important formal and ceremonial relationship with Parliament. The phrase crown in Parliament is used to describe the British legislature, which consists of the sovereign, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. So they have now defined the queen in Parliament and crown in Parliament in exactly the same way. So those are interchangeable of these three different elements. The Commons, a majority of whom normally supports the elected government of the day, has the dominant political power. And as described, that is somewhat similar to our House of Representatives. And in this country, the Congress is actually supposed to be the primary center of power in our government. And that's why the rules for Congress are laid out in Article one of the Constitution. The Queen's role in Parliament is assenting to bills passed by Parliament on the advice of ministers. So does she just get to say no sometimes? Giving audience to ministers at which Her Majesty may be consulted encourage and warn so she can express her approval or disapproval summoning new parliaments and on the advice of her government appointing the date of its first meeting opening and closing each session of parliament 
The role of the sovereign in the enactment of legislation today is purely formal, although the queen has the right to be consulted to encourage and to warn her ministers via regular audiences with the prime minister. The sovereign's assent is required to all bills passed by parliament in order for them to become law. Royal assent consenting to a measure becoming law has not been refused since 1707. So she could do it, but the crown hasn't done it for 315 years. So we are supposed to assume that that means she can't really do it. That's not really her role. And not just that the common practice is to only bring things that direction once she has already said she will agree with them. It is also long established convention that the queen is asked by parliament to provide consent, which is different to assent for the debating of bills which would affect the prerogative or interests of the crown. Where queen's consent is given, it is signified in each house of parliament and recorded in Hansard. Consent has not been withheld in modern times, except on the advice of government. In the annual state opening of parliament ceremony, the queen opens parliament in person and addresses both houses in the queen's speech. Neither house can proceed to public business until the queen's speech has been read. This speech is drafted by the government and not by the queen. It outlines government's policy for the coming session of parliament and indicates forthcoming legislation. Under the terms of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act of 2011, each parliament consists of five 12-month sessions. While each session is opened by the Queen in person at the state opening, the session is closed in the Queen's name with a speech read in the House of Lords and in the presence of the Commons by the Leader of the Lords. When Parliament is summoned after a royal proclamation, there must, according to the Representation of the People Act of 1918, be a period of at least 20 days before Parliament meets. This period can be extended, but only for 14 days, according to the Prorogation Act of 1867. There's only one occasion on which Parliament meets without a royal summons, and that is when the sovereign has died. In such circumstances, the succession to the Crown Act 1707 provides that if Parliament is not already sitting, it must immediately meet and sit. The meeting of Parliament Act 1797 provides that if the sovereign dies after Parliament has been dissolved, the immediately preceding Parliament sits for up to six months, if not prorogued or dissolved before then. Now let's check out her relationship with the prime minister. The queen has a special relationship with the prime minister, the senior political figure in the British government, regardless of their political party. Although she is a constitutional monarch who remains politically neutral, the queen retains the ability to give a regular audience to a prime minister during his or her term of office. The queen gives a weekly audience to the prime minister at which she has a right and a duty to express her views on government matters. If either the queen or the prime minister are not available to meet, then they will speak by telephone. These meetings, as with all communications between the queen and her government, remain strictly confidential. Having expressed her views, the queen abides by the advice of her ministers. After a general election, the appointment of a prime minister is the prerogative of the sovereign. In appointing a prime minister, the sovereign is guided by constitutional conventions. The main requirement is to find someone who can command the confidence of the House of Commons. This is normally secured by appointing the leader of the party with an overall majority 
of seats in the commons, but there could still be exceptional circumstances when the queen might need to exercise discretion to ensure that her government is carried on her government. Okay. And so normally the prime minister is the leader of the party with the majority in the house of commons. That is what described Boris Johnson up until 10 days ago. He is no longer the leader of that party, even though that party retains the majority. They will eventually select a new party leader. And at that point, the queen could, if she decides, appoint the new leader of the party to the role of prime minister. But since this is a role for the queen, Boris Johnson announcing that he is stepping down and resigning as his role of leader of his party does not necessarily mean that he's stepping down in his role as prime minister. When a potential prime minister is called to Buckingham Palace, the queen will ask him or her whether he or she will form a government. To this question, two responses are realistically possible. The most usual is acceptance. If the situation is uncertain, as it was with Sir Alec Douglas Holm in 1963, a potential prime minister can accept an exploratory commission, returning later to report either failure or, as occurred in 1963, success. After a new prime minister has been appointed, the court circular will record that the prime minister kissed hands on appointment. This is not literally the case. In fact, the actual kissing of hands will take place later in council. So you might say, fine, the queen has a certain set of duties with the government that we are told actually governs the UK, but these are mostly ceremonial or they are mere formalities. The queen is hands off when it comes to politics which we are supposed to understand to mean she is also hands off when it comes to the laws of the land. But if that's the case, how come we never hear about the government feuding with the queen? Where are all those stories? I mean, we have paparazzi magazines with an endless supply of stories about the royals, many of them embarrassing. There was all the controversy around Princess Diana's death. We get to watch royal weddings on TV. We get to see Meghan and Harry flying around the world, advocating for certain policies in certain countries, supporting international bodies, working with organizations like Global Citizen, for instance, vaccine organizations, organizations having to do with poverty and hunger and migration. And of course, the UN, where Prince Harry is giving a speech about American policy. It's incredible that the royal family, who we're told does not even have a political role in the UK, obviously false, is taking on a pretty obvious political role in global governance. With this speech particularly aimed at what's going on in the United States, it's almost like they still see us as a colony. Now, changing subjects slightly, but still aligned with what the global bodies are doing to the world, particularly when it comes to the pandemic crisis, Dr. Deborah Burks, the scarf lady, 
has released a book and there were quite a few reports over the weekend about just how devastating this book is for her. This is from the National Pulse. Sabotage? Dr. Burks admits to revising and hiding info from Trump's COVID team while altering CDC guidelines without approval. This is in her book. Dr. Deborah Burks, who often appeared in front of COVID-19 task force briefings on behalf of the Trump administration, has admitted to doctoring data associated with the government's response, as well as quietly altering the Centers for Disease Control advice without authorization, according to her own book. Burks, who was brought into the White House task force following recommendations from Republican Party figures such as Matt Mowers, now running for Congress in New Hampshire's first congressional district, writes in her underperforming book, Silent Invasion, quote, I devised a workaround for the governor's reports I was then writing. Instead of including those recommendations in the common bulleted list, I'd include them in the pandemic summary and state-specific recommendations in the governor's reports, where they wouldn't be so obvious. These weekly reports couldn't go out on Monday without administration approval. Week by week, Mark's office began providing line-by-line edits. And right now she's talking about Mark Short, who was the chief of staff to vice president at the time, Mike Pence. After the heavily edited documents were returned to me, I'd reinsert what they had objected to, but place it in those different locations. I'd also reorder and restructure the bullet points so the most salient, the points the administration objected to most no longer fell at the start of the bullet points. I shared these strategies with the three members of the data team also writing these reports. Our Saturday and Sunday report writing routine soon became write, submit, revise, hide, resubmit. Fortunately, this strategic sleight of hand worked. That they never seemed to catch this subterfuge left me to conclude that either they read the finished reports too quickly or they neglected to do the word search that would have revealed the language to which they objected. So she's admitting to doctoring those reports and attempting to mislead the administration. And she's imagining that all of this will be seen as heroic because I must assume she is still trapped in the same media bubble in which she was operating in 2020, where she thinks the television is going to let everybody know that she is a world-renowned expert who is trying to save everybody's lives with all of these policies that, it turns out, destroyed everybody's lives. Burks's appointment was welcomed by her former chief of staff in the State Department, Mowers, who tweeted, this is February 27th, 2020, I served as chief of staff to Ambassador Burks, and I have the utmost confidence that she will ensure America is prepared to confront the coronavirus outbreak. Her passion and commitment to ensuring our nation's health and safety are second to none. So it's her commitment to health and safety that caused her to lie to the administration and the American people. Indeed, press reports indicate that Burks's ability to operate in such a manner was specifically due to Mowers' influence. Though Burks was not personally close to the president, she was able to develop a close relationship with this White House, in part because Trump campaign official Matt Mowers served as her chief of staff for nearly two years, according to a source familiar with her situation. 
And that quote was from a CNN report linked in the National Pulse article. And that report was childishly titled How Fauci and Burks Got Trump to Listen to Science. Ooh, the science. Within weeks, however, Burks was thwarting the will of President Trump and his team in order to prioritize the demands of pharmaceutical lobbyists and Chinese Communist Party sympathizers like Anthony Fauci. She further revealed, and this is from the book, this wasn't the only bit of subterfuge I had to engage in. Immediately after the Atlas Influence revised CDC testing guidance went up in late August, I contacted Bob Redfield. Now, Atlas is Scott Atlas from Stanford, who Trump brought in to make sure that there was someone honest and not captured by pharma on the task force. And Bob Redfield is Robert Redfield, who was the director of the CDC at that point. He confirmed my suspicions. He had disagreed with the guidance, but had felt pressured by HHS and the White House to post it. Also, many on his staff in Atlanta were still comfortable prioritizing symptomatic individuals. Even at this late point, eight months into the pandemic, many at both the White House and the CDC still refused to see that silent spread played a prominent role in viral spread and that it started with social gatherings, especially among the younger adults. Now, that is just flatly untrue. And for the record, asymptomatic spread still has not been proven. The coronavirus also poses virtually no risk to younger adults. So Burke's usurping illegitimate power for her position so that she could override the administration based on narrative issues, narrative problems, things that they wanted the public to believe she wanted to reflect those in the policy, regardless of what the elected leader of the country and his administration wanted. We had to find a way around them, she writes, recognizing the damage to public health the Scott Atlas driven testing guidance could do and was doing with testing rates dropping across the country. Bob and I agreed to quietly rewrite the guidance and post it to the CDC website. We would not seek approval because we were both quite busy. It might take a week or two, but we were committed to subverting. The dangerous message that limiting testing was the right thing to do. Limiting testing was the right thing to do. Again, like I said last week, the best response to coronavirus, the simplest response would have been to do absolutely nothing other than to tell old people that maybe they might want to take it easy for a little while, not go into crowds if they're nervous or they're in poor health. But instead, we used false tests. And we made those tests mandatory at events, for people's jobs, for going on airplanes. So we just get thousands and thousands, millions and millions of tests, always more tests. We want the most tests ever, all the time, whatever's available. Let's stick these rods up people's nose, even though they're from China and we don't know what's on them. And even though we know that because of how we run them and misuse them, and the fact that they can't actually detect coronavirus, they return upwards of 90% positives, which gives us cases, which funds the whole medical community that's going along with the program, even though they know it's wrong. If we didn't have that medical community on our side, well, then we wouldn't be able to give people remdesivir and then put them on a ventilator where they would almost inevitably die. So Birx's subterfuge was to make sure 
that the country understood asymptomatic spread to be the real threat. You are diseased even if you don't know you're diseased. So don't go anywhere. Don't be around anyone. Mask up. Do whatever we say. And definitely don't complain that your career was just taken from you. That was part one. Letting everybody know how important asymptomatic spread is. Well, part two is increasing the tests and convincing people with no symptoms that they had to take those tests, knowing that that would just drive case numbers up and make the pandemic sound very, very scary. So people would stay locked down and they would beg for mail-in ballots and they would do whatever they were told. As this was going on, Republican figures like Mowers were running cover for the scarfed bureaucrat, and he was tweeting out about how thankful he was for Ambassador Burks's leadership in the response that we're in good hands. Worse still, Burks claimed to offer little contrition over her outright insubordination when challenged on the matter by then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. On September 18th, I was still on the road in Arizona again for a meeting with those conducting proactive testing at the University of Arizona when Mark Meadows' name and number flashed across my White House-issued smartphone. What the hell do you think you're doing? You rewrote and posted the CDC testing stuff. Yes, I did, but there's no buts here. You went over my head. That's Meadows in response. I explained why I'd done it. We'd already seen the drop in testing numbers resulting from Scott Atlas's dangerous guidelines. Those few pages we'd rewritten would change how states could test and we'd prevent even more community spread going into the dangerous winter ahead. Mark Meadows took this in and then, biting off each of his words, said, You went over everyone else on the task force's heads. You went around the whole approval process. You do not make unilateral decisions. It's that simple. Period. End of sentence. Understood. Don't ever do this again. Understood. I did what I needed to do. Don't do that again without talking to me first. That's the conversation as Burks related. She is expecting the people in the media and all of the child brains still focused on the central narrative to think her actions here were heroic. But Scott Atlas was in the right and he was in the right the entire time. In fact, Scott Atlas has written a book and done many appearances on the subject. He talked about how he would ask questions in the coronavirus task force meetings. He would ask questions of Burks and Fauci and Redfield and others and he would get no answers supported by data. He would just get the narrative. This is what we need to do. This is important for this reason. Scott Atlas was treated like he was a conspiracy theorist, even though not only is he an expert in the field, but he was right the whole time. There is nothing dangerous about slowing down the testing. And if there was, then the fact that slowing down of testing happened at multiple times throughout the last two years would have shown us some sort of danger. Also, no lives have been saved by somehow mitigating community spread with extra testing because none of the mitigation steps work either. The only thing that extra testing does is provide extra cases, which provides extra money and provides the narrative need for greater control over the population. As we just saw last week, they have cases, positive tests, or diagnoses of likely COVID 
for people in the hospital in California. And it has gone up from eight per 100,000 to 10 per 100,000. So now we've gone from medium to high. And so we need to reintroduce and mandate masking in indoor settings, even though the masks don't work. And because they don't work, have no potential of saving anyone's lives. The news will raise questions about the work of Burks and those around her in the White House and whether or not she acted illegally during her employment. The developments could also cost Mowers, whose lead in the New Hampshire one congressional race has narrowed in recent months. His main opponent, former Trump administration official Caroline Levitt, has experienced a bumper fundraising quarter, as well as garnering endorsements from key Trump world figures such as Steve Cortez. So we have an ally of Deborah Burks, someone who helped get her into her position and then provided her cover while she was in the position and doing not only all these anti-scientific things, but also subverting the authority of the elected government, the government elected by the people and the policies she put in place not only had no positive impact, but had extraordinary negative impacts. This man is running for Congress in New Hampshire. He is opposed by a candidate who is supported by key figures in the MAGA movement around Donald Trump. The proper and just outcome of all of this is Matt Mowers losing that race, which he probably won't because New Hampshire has a governor who seems absolutely committed to the election fraud apparatus remaining active in New Hampshire. So we shall see. And Dr. Deborah Burks being brought up on charges that could range all the way up to crimes against humanity and potentially even treason, because as Donald Trump said multiple times, the release of that virus is an act of war. The fact that she is admitting it on these pages is incredible. This must be just a plea for public support. She's trying to win this in the court of public opinion. Hopefully the election fraud in November 2022 will cover up all that. They'll keep uniparty communists in power and she will stave off her day of reckoning for at least another two years. So she thinks that is their plan. That's why they're doing it. She's trying to reframe the subversion of the president of the United States of America in what could be potentially considered a period of wartime as something that she was forced to do based on the science in the interest of saving lives. In fact, by subverting the president of the United States of America during wartime, she's the real hero. But there's another item that caught everyone's interest in Dr. Deborah Burks's book. She said that COVID-19 came from the lab. The Daily Mail reported, Burks, an infectious disease expert who served under former President Donald Trump, told the Daily Mail on Sunday that COVID-19 came out of the box ready to infect when it first emerged in December 2019. Of course, it emerged earlier than that. COVID was already more infectious than the flu when it first arrived, she said, noting that most viruses take months or even years to become highly infectious to humans. The doctor said that means one of two things. Either COVID was an abnormal thing of nature or Chinese scientists at the Wuhan lab were working on coronavirus vaccines and they either caught the virus and spread it 
or it somehow escaped. It happens. Labs aren't perfect. People aren't perfect. We make mistakes and there can be contamination, she said, noting that because the virus is asymptomatic in some people, someone working in the lab with one of the strains could have caught it and not known they had it. Burke said the COVID-19 virus showed signs of being experimented on in a lab. In laboratories, you grow the virus in human cells, allowing it to adapt more. Each time it passes through human cells, it becomes more adapted. I'm not sure yet if Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Google have begun censoring her claim or fact checking it because it is a conspiracy theory that COVID came from a lab. And if you repeat that conspiracy theory, then you might be killing someone's grandmother. It's not important where COVID came from. It was never important. Why would that piece of information matter? Like if it came from a lab, sure, you would know exactly what the virus was and you could work to hold people accountable or at least make sure that never happens again. But none of that matters. We can just say it came from the wet market and then it's nobody's fault. And we can focus on lockdowns and masking and fear and isolation and selling vaccines. Because it would be, you know, not that great for vaccine sales if people just suddenly realize that the same people making the vaccines are the ones that were, you know, researching the virus in that lab and it just got out. It's not exactly the best commercial. But to end, I want to play a clip from one of those coronavirus task force press conferences that we had virtually every day throughout the pandemic where Donald Trump and the coronavirus task force would take questions from reporters, questions they didn't even bother vetting before they were asked. They didn't even write the reporters questions for them. What, what dummies think about how this was seen in 2020 and think about how it sounds now with everything we know. I have a question for you. So we have a lot of very angry media all around this room, and they want one of these seats. But because of social distancing, we are keeping them empty. And they are keeping them empty. Will there ever be a time when all of those really angry, angry people who don't like me much to start off with, but now they really don't like me, will there ever be a time when these seats are full, like full to the brim like it used to be, where people are almost sitting on each other's lap. And this whole row over here is packed. And now they're outside wanting to get in, and they're very jealous of all of these reporters. Will we ever have that again? Or is that something that will be, you know, it'll look like this forever? So we're learning a lot about social distancing and respiratory diseases. And I think those are the discussions we have to have in the future. It was what you were talking about, changing our whole behavior patterns of what we touch and being conscious of that. That was portrayed as Trump being some kind of idiot. That's when we were being told to embrace the new normal. What Trump was doing was putting her on the spot and she didn't even have the courage to say the the narrative thing she was supposed to say. Yeah, we're probably not going to be able to ever sit next to each other like that ever again, because saying that would have been preposterous and people would have known it. So instead, she just told us how good social distancing was. And they never liked to answer those questions directly. 
they prefer to talk in very nonspecific language, hoping that everyone will just take the right implications from it. And then the media will enforce the narrative so that people like Dr. Deborah Burks never actually have to be on the record explaining their science, telling people why their science makes any sense at all. Because if you try to explain the science and your explanation's not any good, people might stop listening to you and you can't have that. There's a global agenda to implement. And it is worth noting that her policies were supported not only by all of these various international organizations, but by the British crown as well. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!